Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. Before we jump in, I'd like to shout out and thank my latest Apple Podcast five-star reviewer, Parenting Coach. This is the review. It is wonderful to listen to this powerful lineup of incredible women flying in life with so many inspiring variations. Sylvia masterfully brings out the best in her guests while she brings a calm yet resilient energy to her soothing voice. Thanks for the joy. Well, thank you, Parenting Coach, for listening and for the review. It means so much and helps our distribution every time we get a five-star review. Okay, so if you are new to the show or a loyal listener, welcome. In season three, we are revisiting a few of our favorite episodes that grapple with big life themes. And here, we dig into something that keeps coming up, the things that hold us back. And importantly, the flip side of that, the myths about what holds us back. So join me in this next hour as I talk to Jessica Cox. Jessica is a pilot and flies an airplane. She surfs, she dives, and she has a black belt in Taekwondo. She holds the Guinness World Record for the only pilot to fly with her feet. She was born without arms, and Jessica Cox is the first and only licensed armless pilot in aviation history. When she's not flying a 1946 air coupe in Arizona, Jessica trains in Taekwondo, mentors children with limb differences, and travels the world as a keynote speaker. Need I state the obvious? People with limb differences can fly. You can find an archive of Jessica's writing in Flying Magazine. Whenever you are listening to this episode, I highly recommend hearing about her experience from her own words. But for now, here we go. A conversation that will inspire and amaze. As we find stories of dismantling limitations, this one will stand out. It will change you. This interview was originally recorded in May of 2021. Jessica Cox. Hi, Jessica. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. We have a common friend, Melissa Burns, who I gather you have crossed, crossed paths with at air shows and up in Alaska. It's such a pleasure to connect with you today. Yes, it is so wonderful to have this community and know that, yeah, I do know Melissa. I've known her for years and all the connections in aviation are always amazing. It's kind of like a small family, kind of like a family feeling. It is. It's really neat. I agree. And so can we just start at the very beginning? Let's go to the beginning. Can you tell us about your upbringing and your family of origin? Give us a context in which you grew up. Well, I grew up in a small town in Sierra Vista, Arizona. It's basically south of Tucson, Arizona. And I grew up in a pretty small community and and had great family and great friends. My parents really gave me a foundation of support. They had no idea that I was going to be born without arms. But when I came out, I was a surprise to everyone, including the doctors, nurses, and everyone. And so they really made a very important decision to keep this positive mindset and give me a foundation of support and, and, and treat me like they would any other child and give me every opportunity I, that I could get, as, a, as even despite the fact that I had what many people consider a disability. And did religion and spirituality play a part in your family life? Yes. 
spirituality, religion, and faith was just a huge part of my life. And that's because I think, I don't know where we would be without it, to be honest, because I know that in the very beginning, during the first couple of months of my life, it was very difficult for my mom to come to terms with it. You know, she asked the why me, why my baby? She didn't even take an aspirin during pregnancy. So for her, she did everything right. And yet I came out with something that seemed like it would make it very difficult for me. And they really, though, used faith to come to an understanding, come to an acceptance of the circumstances. And they really ingrained that aspect of faith in me growing up, because I'd always ask my mom, you know, why, why was I born without arms? And she would always say, you know, God has a reason, be patient, you'll see. Sounds like it really provided a lot of backbone to that positivity. It absolutely did, yes. And what did growing up without arms feel like to you? I mean, you didn't know anything different, but other people knew that there was a difference. What did that feel like for you? You know, it's so funny because I thought of myself as just like any other person. I had an older brother and a sister and they both had their arms and they accepted me as I am. And the only time that I start to recognize my difference was going out to the outside world and being stared at or being having all this attention that came my way because of my difference. And that's probably what alerted me more of my difference than anything else. Sure, when you went out into the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it, how was school for you? School was, it was a little scary, I think, for my mom putting me in school. There wasn't an option of a private school, so I didn't get necessarily special attention, but I went to a public school. And um, I'm a product of the public school system. And initially it was like, you know, how, how are the kids going to react to me? And one of the things my mom did, which I think came up from a protective stance, she went into every first day of school without me and told the kids a little bit about me, showed them my picture and said, you know, here's your new classmate. She has no arms, but she can do everything like everyone else. But I had no idea she did this because my first day was everyone's second day of school. And um, then I'd show up the next day, of course, thinking it was everyone's first day of school. And people started to, you know, interact with me and, and treat me in, in a good way. And it wasn't there were occasions where there were bullies or kids that picked on me or made fun of me like any other kid. I went through all that being teased and, and um, singled out at times and feeling frustrated on the playground if there was a game that required arms and hands and, and it left me out. But I found ways of channeling my and refocusing my attention towards other, other things like for the occasions when baseball was being played, I would just have someone be the batter for me and and then they would bat for me and then I could do and run run to all the bases. So we came up with new unique ways of doing things. I love hearing that your classmates and you teamed up to make the situation just what it was. I think that's what what you do when your kids, right? You you don't really see the differences. Was it a, a diverse community where you were were children used to differences of racial type or, you know, all the other all the other ways? I think I had a unique childhood in the sense that I wasn't in like a small town that was sheltered from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. But instead, I was from a military community. And so we always had people coming and going from all parts of the world. Um, Fort Huachuca was in our own backyard. So a lot of the kids that went to my school were military brats. And they had 
seen much of the world, which is very rare for most children, especially young in age. So they had seen a lot and they exposed us to all these worldly things. And it gave me a little bit easier of a time, I think, because my difference didn't isolate me as much as it could have. Yeah, that's really interesting. What did your parents do that brought you there? My parents both worked on Fort Huachuca for a time. They were civil service, so they didn't work military, but they did spend, they did work on base. You know, I always like to spend some time talking about the background and the early influences. And often there are either events or just sort of impressions of early friction points or pain points that as a child, you sort of become then determined to either change or move toward or move against. So these sort of these goals that are bigger than ourselves as little people, but, you know, continue to show up in our life. You know, it's sort of that borderline of whether you're being stubborn or whether you're being determined, but it can show up and down the line in life. So I wonder for you growing up, were there things that you remember as being sort of seeds that placed ideas of either resistance or things that you wanted to say or change that you see continuing to show up in your life? Yes, there, you know, being that I was such a determined little girl who said I can do anything, but being constantly told that you can't almost like fueled a very uh, competitive nature in me of like, I can prove them wrong. And this desire in me to be able to redeem myself in a sense to show the world I can do it, especially when you're told your whole childhood, your whole life that you can't. I always felt compelled that I wanted to do something to show the world I could. And that's when flying really kind of became that opportunity to redeem myself. And in all those moments when as a child, I felt powerless, I felt like people pitied me, I felt like people thought that I couldn't do something. And I wanted the freedom. I mean, there was an example on the playground as a kid when I felt like, you know, there's a lot of limitations put on me. All I wanted to do was climb up the slide. And the slide had a, a ladder that was at a slant, but it was a 12-foot slide. And everyone thought I'd fall off the ladder without hands and arms, but I knew I could go up there myself. In fact, one day I did end up sneaking up there. But for the majority of my childhood, I was kept off the slide. And one time the school counselor had to call my mom and say, your daughter's trying to climb up the slide. We don't know what to do. We can't keep her off, you know. So that resistance really channeled in me this almost competitive desire to prove that I could do it. And I'd sit on the swing sometimes and just close my eyes and, and envision flying and, and breaking free of those bounds that were put on me. Yeah. I mean, don't tell a kid they can't go up that slide, right? <laughs> right? I know. It's the best part of the playground. <laughs> yeah. So, and you did have prosthetics for a while as a kid, didn't you? I did. I had my first prosthetic limb at the age of three, and then I was given two. So as I grew, I was given and fitted with a new set of arms. And I wore them for a consistent 11 years to school every day. They were always part of the morning routine, getting dressed, putting them on and heading to school. But I never made a connection to them. Never. Hmm. They were just awkward. They made me clumsy. Yeah. They made me sweat and hot and felt like a caged bird at times. Mm -hmm. For 11 years. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And then what happened? Then I was at an age, 14 years old, first day of eighth grade, and your parents start to give you a little bit more autonomy and a little more a say in what you do and, and where. And, and I remember finally making a decision on my own. I don't want to wear them anymore. And at that time, I, we were moving to a new town, so it gave me a fresh start to start with a fresh with a new identity. And that identity was going to be myself without the prosthetics. Mm. And it was the greatest decision I ever made. I just remember walking the bus stop, feeling so empowered that I was finally going to be the person God created me to be. And yeah, it, I still got picked on that year in eighth grade. I mean, there were occasions, I can think of three or four that stand out where I was picked on for my not having arms, but it didn't matter as long as I was confident in who I am mm-hmm. and to be able to make that decision as a 14 year old was very important. Wow. I mean, that's a tender age, no matter what, isn't it? It sure is. So tell me more about what gave you the idea to learn to fly. You mentioned being on the swing, but I would just love to hear more about how that sparked the actual event that sparked it when you actually realized that it was something that you wanted to do. You know, strangely enough, I'd never been in a small plane until I was 21. And I didn't have a taste of aviation. There weren't pilots in my family or or, uh, friends who were pilots. It was just this very kind of off. It was just something that was, wasn't really available to me. And then I was given the chance to go flying by a fighter pilot. He asked if I wanted to go up on a joyride flight. And I said, I didn't really get excited about it because it was my fear to fly. And the thought of flying just terrified me. But my dad was with me at the time and he jumped in and said, she would love to. So he was being a typical parent, really stretching <laughs> our comfort zone. And uh, I went up on my first flight, not too long after that, totally unrelated to that first invitation. But I went up for my first international keynote speech. And I had to get to Mexico in a small Cessna airplane because there weren't any commercial flights there. So up I went on my first flight to my first international keynote speech as a a motivational speaker. And it was the first time I flew in a Cessna and the first time I ever was in a small plane. And I flew back and the pilot gave me the opportunity to put my foot on the yoke. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting sensation. And I thought at that moment, I want to do everything I can to become a pilot. And I was ready for my next challenge. I just graduated college and and I thought this would be aligned really well with the speaking profession because I always tell people to not let fear stand in the way of opportunities. So it really worked. It came at at a good time in my life. I was ready for the challenge. And it it aligned well with my speaking career. Wow. Well, I do want to talk more about your speaking career, but I can't resist continuing the conversation about flying and how you actually learn to fly. How is it possible to fly a plane without arms? I know it's so, it's even hard for me to think about because, you know, you go through the motions and you're trained so well by instructors that once you're in that plane, you, you fly that plane in a very safe manner. But when I'm on the ground thinking about it, I'm not in the plane. It's almost like, wow, I really am able to fly a plane. And it's, it's unbelievable. Here it is, you know, 10 years later, I still am in a little bit in disbelief. But I mean, I don't know if that'd be the same also for someone flying with their hands, but I just have my right foot on the yoke and my left foot on the throttle and crisscross flying the plane with my legs and 
and a single foot brake. It just to, for your listeners who know about airplanes, this is an air coupe airplane. So it is the only airplane without rudder pedals, which answers the question, how can you fly it with just two limbs? Well, this plane can be flown with just two limbs. It doesn't have the rudder pedal. So the way you literally fly is with your feet and you're sort of in a cross-legged position? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did your family think? I think my mom was really kind of iffy, like, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, I know my sister thought I was pretty crazy. I mean, at that point, my brother and sister knew, you know, I, I do crazy things. So it didn't necessarily surprise them too much, but they were a little unsure about it, about that goal. But they saw how focused I was. And I think my dad loved it because he was an aviation enthusiast, always wanted to fly. <laughs> so I had him on board. Um, but everyone else in the family was like, are you sure you want to do this? Can you speak more to the fear component of your story to learn how to fly? Yeah. So one of the things I didn't know anything about like aeronautical knowledge, like how is it that an airplane can take off? And all that fear, I think, was rooted in the unknown, in a sense, because I didn't know how it's possible for a plane to be in the sky and and how if the engine quits, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. It can glide down somewhere. Mm -hmm. And all this knowledge that came with becoming a pilot helped rid most of my fear and that fear of the unknown that we all have when there's something new or completely foreign to us, just getting to know the specifics and and all the knowledge that's required, it made it easier. And do you find now still, like when you're on the ground and preparing, that the idea of flying can still trigger the fear, but then when you like click into the reality that you're flying today and you do all the things, you go through the procedures, the checklists, and is there a shift that happens with you then? Yeah, it's almost like the left part of my brain, the more methodical and process-oriented side of my brain kicks in because, I mean, I am pretty creative. I have to be creative living life in a two-handed world with two feet. So that right side, that right creative side tames down a little bit. And I think we are able to rise to the occasion. And especially if you have had good instruction, you know that you don't rely off memory. You use checklists. You do things very procedural. You go through a procedure. And that is what helps me to function and shift out of my usual self Mm -hmm. into the responsible pilot self. Yeah, it's something I love about flying as well, how we really need to click off that creative side, somehow keep in touch with the intuitive side because that is important. But Mm -hmm. there's something about the methodical side of the brain, if we think about it that way, that it's kind of a relief sometimes. Yeah, true. So tell me more about your college experience and mostly kind of what direction you decided to go in and why. I went from on, I was in en route to becoming a doctor, med school, everything, did pre-med classes, did all the sciences. And then I switched junior year to psychology. And I loved it. I absolutely loved psychology. So getting a degree in psychology, a bachelor of science in psychology was something you could do anything with. And I didn't know it set me up well for a profession as a speaker, but it did. It really did because it it focused a lot on, on how we think and how we process things. 
and helping other people get through their own little hurdles. A lot of times it's, it's all mental and recognizing the power of the brain and our attitude. I think that really came together so well for my career. And then learning how to be a motivational speaker, did that come in tandem with your studies or was that sort of afterwards? That was kind of tandem because I did do a couple volunteer speeches throughout college, Mm -hmm. but I never really started seriously thinking myself as a speaker until after college. Mm -hmm. That's when I started receiving invitations to really go out there and push their career and get as much stage time as I could, as many opportunities to speak in front of groups. So I had that experience. You know, that's how you learn best is just by doing. Mm -hmm. And when did you realize that instead of being not enough, you were plenty enough? And in fact, you could have such a life-changing impact on others. When did you realize that you could sort of be on the other side of that? took years to get there because I was still, you know, dealing with some of the young adult challenges that we all have in our 20s. And then I started to blossom. I mean, I blossomed really uh, a lot in, in college because here was a stage in life when being different was good. Standing out was a good thing. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of find my voice and find myself and be more open and out there and accepting that my difference is an asset and not so much a detriment. Using it, do great things like speaking, which because I could command more attention and and even on a daily basis, how I could be an inspiration to other people and recognizing that, that I could help others by giving them hope. And I think really embracing who I, I am and what what are some of the gifts that come with it started, you know, right, right around college time towards that young adult time in life. And then right after college, I was propelled to do something great. And that's when flying came in to the picture and, and all of that. And the flying boosted my confidence tremendously. Yeah. I love to hear how that transition was gradual. And it's sort of these layers of both things that are happening externally and internally. Some of it just sounds like it just was part of growing up. You also had the grounding of faith and spirituality, and you also had a Taekwondo practice. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and how, what role that played in you throughout, because you started that at a young age. Mm-hmm. Taekwondo was always a good source for confidence and fitness, flexibility. So the need to use my legs and feet meant that I had to maintain flexibility. And so always having Taekwondo there as as something to practice and keep fit was a very good source for me. But at the same time, it was also an emotional boost when I can move through the ranks in Taekwondo and know that I have a new achievement of a new belt and I got that and then go to competitions and attempting to compete whether or not I won as that boosted my emotional state and my confidence. And all of that kind of came together. And sure enough, ended up leading me to my future husband sharing the same passion of Taekwondo. So mm -hmm. that's how you met? That's how we met. We met through the Taekwondo. So we've talked about flying and we've talked about Taekwondo. I also want to ask you about the water sports that you do, surfing and scuba diving. 
there are some perceived challenges and safety complications with doing that without arms. Can you speak to how you did that and why you why you do that? I was told once that scuba diving is like flying underwater. Mm. And being a pilot and, and really having the obsession with flight, once you become one, you know, you catch the bug, like they say, you know, you want to see what it's like. If they say it's like they compare it to flying, well, I want to try it out. So I wanted to get scuba diving certified. It was about the same year that I was certified as a pilot, actually, maybe a year later. And I thought, well, let's see what this is like. And it was another adventure. It was another challenge. Uh, and then shortly after that, the opportunity to surf came about and surfing another challenge again. I'm just challenge driven if you haven't picked up on that already. Right. <laughs> so <for> me, <laughs> Clearly. I'm like that, you know, kid who just wants a new challenge, who wants something that what pushes me and, and helps me grow. And I just love taking on something. If someone says, you know, how would you like to try this? And I say yes, because I know that once I achieve that goal or something that I thought was impossible. Once I achieve it, it's amazing that sense of confidence, that surge of accomplishment that comes from it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It really is amazing. When I was preparing for this and I was learning about all the things that you've done and the places you've been, one of the things that you have done is gone up to Alaska and you were invited up there. Can you explain what you were doing on that? tour, if I can call it that, to rural Alaska? Sure. The Alaska Airmen invited me out on four tours. The first tour, I remember, was like going on a true adventure because it was still during the season when there was a lot of snow and blizzards. And, and being that I grew up in the desert, Arizona, and going out to Alaska where I didn't even have a coat. So I had to buy coats and I had to buy warm clothes, cold weather clothing to be prepared for the trip. And I was out there going and being flown by bush pilots to these remote villages in, you know, rural Alaska. And these native uh, Alaskans uh, had schools, they had, you know, everything you need for a small community. And I was brought to the schools to speak to the kids and to talk about inspiration, to talk about how flying inspired me and how I became a pilot to give them hope and inspiration so that they could get through the, some of the challenges that they were faced with. Wow. That must have been quite an experience for you. It was. It really was. I just remember one of those flights in with a bush pilot, and I could not even see the ground below. And then we landed on this, you know, runway, very small runway. And I was like, how did you even see any of that? Because we were in the middle of a blizzard. It was just crazy how these pilots are incredible. That was an amazing flight. And in some of these areas, I had to literally not only get on a plane, but then get on a boat and then take this adventure into where these communities are. And then speaking with them, one of the things I asked, I remember going to an Alaskan school and something came up about Alaskan ice cream. And I'm the biggest fan of ice cream. Like I live for ice cream. I just had some yesterday. I, have, I try, try to like cut myself off throughout the week because I eat too much of it. <laughs> and they said, oh, do you want some Alaska ice cream? I'm like, of course I want Alaska ice cream. I love it. And one of the teachers was like, well, my wife just made some 
And she just picked some fresh berries this morning. So it's fresh at home. I'll go run home and get it. And he, he goes home to his wife, brings back this Alaskan, it's called Eskimo ice cream, and puts it in front of me. And my husband and I have no idea what we're about to receive. And it's a bowl full of lard with berries sprinkled on it and a whole, like a whole couple, like probably like five scoops of sugar on top of that. (laughs) And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I've never eaten lard like this before, but I didn't want to be rude because he went out of his way to bring this to me with these fresh berries that were picked that morning. And and so Patrick and I start to share this bowl of, of Eskimo ice cream. And then he like, passes it over to be like here you go you asked for it and I'm having to swallow all this lard oh my gosh I didn't want to be rude but it was it was definitely an unforgettable moment right you are not in Arizona anymore no (laughs) wow gosh you're such an adventurer I mean I knew that before talking to you but just even the way that it clearly fires you up to go to places and and do things that are I mean being in rural Alaska in the winter, um, yeah, it takes some grit for sure. And, you know, your approach to fear and is really, it's just really having an impact on me. I really am enjoying talking about it and seeing how the fear sort of enlivens you. It does. It's funny how that is so true. It kind of just really wakes me up and makes me feel, like you said, alive and excited and and ready to tackle something. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you something before we move on about the role of being the, and I'm putting quotes here, it's sort of the inspiration or being inspirational or inspiring. And I know that there's a lot of sensitivity in the disabled community about being objectified and sort of being called the inspiration as if you're an object. Can you speak to that? I know there's some com- complexity to it, but can you speak to that? Sure, yes, because I've mentioned inspiration here in this interview, and I know a lot of people with disabilities will say, I don't want to be an inspiration. I just want to be me, and, and, and what I do on a daily basis shouldn't be inspiration to other people. This is just, it should be normalized, and someone with a disability shouldn't be seen as inspiration for doing these basic things. And I really have to clarify because I know there's that argument and I completely get it. I completely get it. Why do you want to be, you don't want to, you know, I don't, I was at the store the other day getting some cream puffs. Cause again, I told you I love ice cream and I love frozen treats that I was buying. <laughs> I went to Safeway just to buy a box of cream puffs. And I went by myself and went through this self checkout line. And I, of course, wiped my card and did every, the whole purchase with my foot. And the w- guy behind me is like, you are so brave. And, and which I'm like, why for buying cream puffs? You know, I was actually being bad buying cream puffs, but the act of me doing something on my own was supposedly courageous. And I think people with disabilities don't want to be seen as doing those normal things as being courageous, just being normal. Mm-hmm. And that whole objectified part is a huge thing. And, but when I do things like, for example, flying a plane, which I had to conquer my own fear. And the fear element, I think, is the inspirational element, not the fact that I did it with my feet, but that I did something despite the fact that it would terrify me. And how often do we hold back from doing things that scare us? And it prevents us from being, you know, 
very strong. When we when we conquer something, despite those fears, we come out of it stronger and more empowered. And another clarification I have to make, and this is not exactly what you asked, but I cannot actually motivate people. They have to be able to motivate themselves. I can inspire them to motivate themselves. So that's another thing I have to clarify is because it's a, it's a choice to motivate yourself. Mm-hmm. But to answer your original question, yes, there's a, a line. And I think there's always going to be conversations about this in the disability community. And I obviously have chosen a career that puts me in the spotlight. So I have to have this balance between being a motivational speaker and an inspiration for people. And also at the same time, being an advocate for people and advocating for the right, for the things that that people with disabilities want, just to have what they do being a normal thing. Yeah, I really appreciate you reflecting on that and sharing that. I had just come across on Twitter a remark that struck me and is really consistent with what you're saying. And I'm just going to read it. This is from Anne Strike, who's 47-year-old in a wheelchair in Essex. She says, I do cringe when people marvel at me saying, I must be brave, just what, just what you said, Jessica, or inspiring, just because I'm out shopping on my own. You must be so brave. I found this phrase very patronizing. Don't say this to me unless I have wrestled a tiger or a crocodile or done something extraordinary like fly to the moon and back. I don't see how I can be inspiring by getting on with my life. What I'm hearing, and please correct me, but I think this is really important to talk about, everyday aspects of life. It is demeaning to kind of call that out as being brave. However, you know, when she says, if you fly to the moon, I was like, oh, that's probably the next thing on Jessica's bucket list. And, and, she, <laughs> and Jessica, she is inspiring in, in this way that, like, that you're describing it, of capturing this fear element and using that as almost a propulsion to do the thing. Yes. It's so wonderful, too, when you're on that other end of doing something, knowing you did it, even though you were afraid of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like a feeling of, uh, wow, I'm so a really like ultimate feeling of being proud of yourself for doing it. And I, it just came to mind a time that I did something that I was really afraid of, and that was to go to an open mic night and do some comedy. I was, so I went to a comedy club local to Tucson where I live and open mic night basically invites anyone from the community to go in you sign up for five minute blocks and you put your name down they call you up and you go up there and it has to be one of the most terrifying things because you stand up in front of strangers there's this light like bright and hot on your face you can't even see anything that spotlight is so bright you can't see anyone around you you know there's all these shadows so you know there are people there because you can hear them rustling around and see movement but do you go up there and you just totally you feel so naked going up there and saying these five minutes of comedy you don't even know if they're going to laugh are they going to boo you off the stage and then for me the additional element was are they going to feel like it's wrong to laugh at someone with a disability and so all those thoughts are going racing through my head as I was preparing and I was just sweating my heart beating there's all this adrenaline leading up to that time that you go on stage and all those thoughts and then there's this door, the exit door that's not <laughs> too far from you. You're like, you know, I could exit right now and no mm-hmm. one will even notice mm-hmm. because they could just get to my name and just skip over it. And there's that possibility that you can escape all of that. But then you just pull your courage together and you go out there and 
And I remember doing those first five minutes and I still remember very vividly that it went off really well. I got a lot of good laughs. People didn't feel like they couldn't laugh at me because of my disability. And it was just felt so good to do it despite all the that was against me in going up there. Yeah, seriously. So let me dig into that, the psychology of that, just one more level. When you're about to go on stage, do you have thought patterns or routines that get you in that mindset? Yes. I first of all say a prayer. And because I know that being up there, and this is something you learn very early on as a speaker, is that this is not about you going on stage. It's never been about you. It's about them and each mm. every each and every audience member. And the sooner you get to that realization, the better speaker you become. So I recognize that I'm not going up there for me and, you know, whatever it is, it's in my interpretation of me being up there on stage. It's it's not about me. And it's all about the audience and mm. what they can take away from it. And so I say a prayer of of almost like hoping that that whatever it is that needs to be said will come out of me and will be spoken to the very person in the audience who may need to hear at that very exact moment in their life. So I always say a prayer and I go up on stage and I begin to speak and I do my best not to go and focus so much on a script, but to be as present as I can be to the audience. Now that's been very hard because I'm very much a control person. So for me, having a whole script or uh, outline of what I'm going to say, what I'm going to speak of. But when I focus in on that, that's just my brain and that's not my heart. So if my heart is there and I'm in the present moment, I'm there for the people, then you never know where you'll go. But letting go of the brain is the hardest part. So I just, even as a speaker now, 15 years in the making, I still work on that every time I speak in front of, in front of an audience. Wow. So you just, you're trying to get out of your head. You've done all the prep. And so you have to trust that your heart takes over from there. Yes. Do you enjoy being in the spotlight? I am not the like attention getter type who wants to always be in the spotlight. If you, if you were to see me among friends, that's definitely not my personality trait. But I know that my life circumstances and uh, who I am can command and make such a huge difference that. I need to use it. It's almost like a responsibility to be able to see that in the world, um, even though it may not fall in line exactly with who I am, you know, off stage. Do you feel like the public has expectations of you? I think they do. And, and I put some of those expectations on myself with my brand and the things that I continue to do and, and how I want to be seen. But I always have to balance that because, you know, every one of us is human. So I really have to sometimes reflect a lot and, and think about, but have this balance and sense of, you know, I'm, I have a good amount of time speaking on stage and I'm gearing up for a, a huge speaking tour on the 20th mm. where I'm going and traveling to different places to speak. But I also have, a, have to have a good balance of ways in which I can, basically I can go and, and get refreshed and, and feel like I can charge up again. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of this before is that introverts have to find ways of recharging by being having alone time. But extroverts, they get energy from being in crowds of people or speaking on stage. I get energized when I'm on stage speaking, that's for sure. The energy from audience members gives me the energy I need to continue. 
but I'm more of an introvert. So I do have to find moments where I can reflect and have meditation or time to myself. Mm -hmm. And do you have one piece of motivational advice that you've been given that's so remarkable that you need to share it with us? Yes, I love this quote that I share whenever I'm on stage. And if there's one quote that I in, I make sure that I include in my speeches, and that's the quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. And it spoke to me at a time in my life when I first heard that quote, that I was like, I need to include this quote because it's so important. Because everyone, every one of us has some kind of challenge or something that we're, that we wrestle with. Mm-hmm. But recognizing that is so important. And one of the techniques I use is gratitude. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, I'm sure people think, oh, I could dwell on the fact that I don't have arms. And this is my normal. So I don't really know what it's like to have arms. But since the beginning, I think having gratitude has helped me get through a bad day. Or if there's a moment where I'm having not, you know, everything's not as good as it could be. I have to stop for a moment and think about something I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. And that will really put you in a place of abundance. And coming from a place of abundance is a lot more empowering, I will say. Yeah, completely. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? And then we're going to finish up. Sure. Awesome. Sure. Okay, so fill in the blank. Flying to me is? Freeing and empowering. What is something that people often get wrong about you? That I like to eat healthy. Okay, great segue. What's your favorite meal? I love to eat pastas and, oh, my favorite meal, though. It's going to be today. I'm having some pancet, which is a Filipino noodle dish. Oh, tell me more. So right now, I'm, um, there's this noodle dish called pancet. It's, it, the long noodles symbolize long life. So you always serve it during special occasions, whether it's birthdays or celebrations. And um, it's is a very popular thing my my aunt and my mom would make as I was growing up. And whenever you go to the Philippines, it's almost like a staple. <laughs> it's like a very popular dish, kind of like how bread is for some cultures. But this pancit dish is amazing. It has, sometimes it'll have chicken in it. It has vegetables mixed in with it and kind of like Thai noodles. It's, 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 if you've had pad Thai in a Thai restaurant, kind of like that version, a Filipino version of, of noodles. Of, of pad thai. Do you have anything that you're reading right now that you'd like to share? There is this book that just came in the mail today. It's called Fearless Filipinas. And it tells the story of these Filipino women who've accomplished amazing things in business and sports. And I'm going to enjoy reading through that. So I like a lot of nonfiction hmm. books that account for people and their success. Are you in the book? They did ask me to be in it. So I'll be. I was in there and it literally just came in yesterday. So I haven't even had the chance to look at it. Oh my goodness. Hot off the press. Yes. It's called Fearless Filipinas. Tell me one thing you are grateful for right now. I'm looking down and I see an adorable Labradoodle puppy, Mm. Chewy, and he's sleeping. So whenever I do interviews or speeches, because a lot of my speeches have turned virtual with everything happening with the pandemic, but he automatically when he knows that I need to focus and he's only 10 months old Mm. he goes and he takes a nap and he totally just doesn't bother me and I don't know how 
grateful I could be for such a dog that's so intuitive to the need for me to focus. That's so funny. That's so interesting. And you know, it's when we talked earlier, which was not an interview and you probably had a different vibe about you. He was, he was crazy, right? He was chewing things and, you know, doing what little puppies do. (laughs) And now he's just being there to be a rock right under your feet. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, this has been great. And we are wrapping up, but I, I have a question for our able-bodied listeners and specifically if we can get your personal perspective on this, because I know there's, there should be no assumptions, but I imagine that you've had some really positive advocates and some that were less so in, in what you have ventured to do. Do you have any specific advice for how to be better, how the public could be better, have more awareness and have less of a transactional perspective on assumptions and the perceived limitations? Yes. I'm so glad you said this, and I'm glad we're leaving on this note, because I have even made an effort to make it easy for people to remember. And I have an acronym, and I share this with every company I speak for, to help bring about more inclusion, and that's ACCEPT, A-C-C-E-P-T, where A represents acknowledge, and acknowledge meaning many people who are different or have disabilities are seen as invisible. Many people will turn their gaze the other direction if they happen to catch a a glimpse of someone who looks like they are different in some way or fashion. And that is so disrespectful for the person. And I and I understand it comes from the individuals, you know, them being uncomfortable. But I always say that you need to remember to acknowledge everyone regardless of how uncomfortable it makes you feel. So that first letter acknowledge is critical. The next letter is communicate. To rid assumptions, it's best never to just assume and say, you know, this person needs help. They look like they're struggling. But for them, that might be their norm and it might just take them a little longer to do something. So it's always best to ask the question, is there any way in which I can help you before making the assumption that I need to help this person? Mm -hmm. And the next C is consider. And that basically is pretty straightforward. It's just, you know, however you want to be treated, just think about that and, and treat other people who may be different or have a disability, treat them in the same way you would want to be treated and say something to them in the same way. Like you were, we were talking earlier, that some things that could be well-intentioned can come across as condescending. And that's, a, you know, that that's very disempowering. And then the next letter is E and that's empathy and not pity because no one wants to be pitied. And when you pity someone, you're coming from a higher up position than the other person. So do you want Empathy, you're coming from the same level, and that's what everyone wants. They ultimately want to be understood, loved, and accepted. And the next letter is P, people first language, focusing on the person before the difference or the person before the disability. And T is for trust, trusting that people with disabilities can be their own best advocates and they can communicate what they need. So accept is the important acronym that I share with everyone. Wow. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I'm sure you have a lot on tap for the future, being the the planner that you are. And you mentioned the tour that you're going on starting the 20th. Can you tell us what's on tap and how people can find out more about you? 
Okay, well, the exciting tour is not going to be until this summer, and that tour is taking the Aircoop airplane that cruises at 90 miles per hour from Tucson, Arizona, all the way to Wisconsin, and stopping in DeCoin, Illinois, for a camp called Camp Nubability. It has over 200 children with limb differences. So we're our goal is to stop there and then make our way to AirVenture in Wisconsin and the AirCoop Nationals around the same week. So that's a, a huge trip. And if anyone wants to find out more about that, you can look on the JCMS official Facebook page, JCMS official pa- Facebook page, and I'll be doing videos of, of that whole trip. So that's the, the most exciting thing coming up this summer with the airplane. Awesome. And I will put links to your website and all the things we've talked about in our show notes. But Jessica, huge bouquet of gratitude I am sending to you. And I just really thank you for this conversation, for being so honest and open and inspiring. Thank you, Sylvia. Wow. This conversation is a deep dive into an extraordinary woman. Jessica Cox, thank you. I am moved and informed and inspired and simply amazed. I hope you too, listeners, will take some time with this conversation. It really got me thinking about real and perceived limitations in a different way. So I'm just glad you're here. Thank you so much for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. I'm super grateful. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter on our website, whenwomenfly.com. I post new episodes every week. So if this resonates with you, follow, share, review. I don't ask money from my listeners. I believe in free access, but my sponsors really care if you share. Believe in the transformative power of story. Just share an episode and you will have amplified a story that might just spark a pivotal moment for someone. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.